there has not been a case that directly overturns Buck versus Bell. I'd say that the closest we really have is the Skinner versus Oklahoma case, which analyzed the application of sterilization in the criminal context through the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause. But that case, it doesn't eliminate eugenics as unconstitutional. It simply says that if eugenics is being applied in the criminal context, it has to be applied in a non-discriminatory manner. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could join us today. I'm Craig Williams from a very sunny Southern California with a little bit of rain in the forecast. My co-host, Bob Ambrosi, is in court today and can't be with us. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. And we'd like to take this time to thank our sponsors, Clio, a web-based practice management program for lawyers at goclio.com, and Firm Manager from LexisNexis at firmmanager.com slash LTN. In one of the lesser-known and darker chapters of U.S. history, a program called Eugenics gave state boards, government officials, and even some social workers the right to deem someone promiscuous, feeble-minded, and therefore unfit to procreate. The outcome of this was that 66,000 Americans were selectively sterilized between the late 1920s and the 1980s. The Supreme Court even weighed in at one point with a controversial decision, and believe it or not, Forced sterilization is still technically constitutional. And joining us today for another great discussion are two very knowledgeable guests. First up is Alfred Brophy. Alfred is an attorney and professor of law at the University of North Carolina School of Law in Chapel Hill. He is also the author of many books, including Reparations, Pros, and Cons. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Alfred. Craig, thanks very much. Um, And I'm looking forward to the discussion. I'm been surprised at how many um, nuances and sort of moving parts there are in this whole, whole North Carolina um, uh, is North Carolina's effort to revisit the era of sterilization. Great. And our other guest today is attorney and legal blogger James Bowden. James is an associate at Waller Lansden in Nashville, Tennessee. He's also a member of the editorial board for Waller Lansden's award-winning Young Lawyers blog, where he has written about the constitutionality of eugenics. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network, James. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here and flattered to be included. Well, Al, let's start with you. There are a lot of people that associate eugenics with the Nazis, but what's the real history behind this? Well, um, there was a movement that began in the late 19th century, um, but really picked up steam in the early part of the 20th century, um, that was part of a widespread movement to have um, government regulation of life in all sorts of um, settings. Lots of it was government regulation of the economy, and it led to things like the Food and Drug Administration, kinds of things, zoning, for instance, things that we think are positive. The government intervened in ways to make the market, um, uh, to, to, to improve the lives of citizens in places sometimes where the market was was breaking down. A lot of that we think is positive. There is also, as you pointed out, Craig, a dark side to this, and that is that there was um, uh, re- some extreme
extreme intrusion on personal autonomy uh, rights and uh, one piece of that era of regulation uh, from the progressive era was the idea that certain people should not have children. This led in the 1910s and 20s to widespread state legislation that gave um, authorities to public health officials to sterilize um, undesirable people, um, and this would include uh, developmentally disabled individuals, people in state mental institutions, occasionally um, uh, people who had been com- convicted of multiple crimes, and people also deemed promiscuous. Uh, and so that's sort of, it was an idea um, that we could use government power to create a better society. Uh, in many ways positive, in this way very dark. And as you point out, um, there were a lot of um, connections between this mindset and um, the the Nazis. In fact, in 19, I think it was 32, Time magazine um, ran an article about um, the eugenics movement in the United States and likened it to what was going on in Germany. And uh, those were both positive, portrayed in positive terms. If I can just continue the sort of this story for just a moment, what happens after World War II, um, in, I think in largely in response to revulsion at the um, Nazis, the eugenics movement more or less dropped off um, uh, popularity in the United States. The U.S. Supreme Court in, I guess it was in Skinner v. Oklahoma, which I think is a 1946 opinion, um, uh, significantly cut back on the power of states to sterilize people who have been convicted of crimes. And so in most states, it drops off after right after World War II, right, which ends in 1945. In North Carolina, it continued for several decades later. Um, and therein, I think, lies a really interesting story. Well, and, and James, the, the program apparently started out as a, a program targeting so-called feeble-minded persons, and it's changed now. Can you give us some background on that? Well, as, as far as the change in, in uh, what the law was applied to when it was in effect, um, and I think it's interesting to point out that, that Oregon actually carried on their program even later than North Carolina. They carried on uh, a program that was the inheritor of the eugenics movement right through 1981. Um, as far as uh, the change in the programs, the shift appears to have been that in the 1910s and 20s, there was support, as uh, Mr. Brophy has mentioned, for uh, applying science to clear society from undesirable people. It seems to have shifted after the Second World War towards more of an idea of undesirable people in the sense of criminals as opposed to simply the feeble-minded. But that carried on for a great length of time. Was well, Alfred was, the, or Al rather, was the uh, was a program limited to women, or did it include men as well? So this is really interesting, and and, and thanks for um, focusing on this because I think what is um, has not gotten a lot of attention is sort of who was selected for sterilization and why they were selected. Right there, these um, as we're going back and trying to think about. Um, a, a, a plan of compensation and whether compensation is appropriate or in the, the, under what terms, I think it's important to begin to um, peel this back and say, well, um, who, why was the government doing this, right? And as James was pointing out, a lot of what you have post-World War II is um, a movement to um, 
uh, keep um, the developmentally disabled um, as, and as well as poor people who um, uh, could not easily afford children to sterilize them. In North Carolina, um, unlike I think every other state, the majority of sterilizations that North Carolina um, that the that the North Carolina um, Eugenics Board approved were after World War II. So where other states were declining after World War II, North Carolina actually the majority of the sterilizations here took place after World War II, and um, it was vast. The vast majority, like eighty five percent, were women. Um, the um, a majority of people I think were who were sterilized were white, but just a bare majority. Uh, a, a great number of the um, people who were sterilized were African American, and there were some, uh, a few Native Americans as well. Um, so disproportionately um, women and disproportionately African American, even though the majority who were sterilized were white. Um, and one of the things, and I hope we'll get into this discussion, let me just begin to preface it here, um, are questions about how were people selected for sterilization and um, how did sort of people come to the attention of the county board? In North Carolina, and I think this is true in most states, this was sort of a um, a, a program that, that began at the grassroots, that is at the county level. You'd have county health officials um, uh, identifying people um, as uh, uh, people who were either developmentally disabled, uh, uh, had uh, mental health problems, or were poor and shouldn't uh, couldn't afford to have more children, and then sort of filling out paperwork, um, and it was really routinized. They had pre-printed forms um, for information that the, 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 the local officials would collect, um, and then passing this information on to the state board of eugenics, um, which was a five-member board, and they had an attorney general uh, or the attorney general's representative was on the board, and um, uh, state health officials. It was a pretty interesting and important high-level board that would then take um, testimony, in fact, conduct a trial, um, an administrative trial, to determine whether the person should be sterilized. What's at the center of the North Carolina um, movement for uh, compensation um, is this question of how many people were sort of involuntarily sterilized, how many people had family members come in and say, hey, we don't want this to happen, um, versus, and this is, there were some, it's unclear how many, but there were some people who actually sought out sterilization, right? They'd had enough children and they wanted to use this as family planning, much the way people will occasionally do that today. That seems to have been a fairly small part of this, but I think in, in sort of trying to evaluate what's going on here, we need to be careful to segregate out the instances the, of the sort of outrageous interference with personal autonomy where a, per, a young person, a minor, is... Um, uh, uh, adjudicated as needing sterilization, and that's involuntary, or where a person is coerced into agreeing to sterilization, and that I think is very is obviously very different from people who sort of seek this procedure out. And James, can you give us some uh, history about whether permission was needed before the sterilization took place, or were simply did these trials get conducted and you got adjudicated as either feeble-minded or needing sterilization, and 
you got it whether you liked it or not. Well, I think the really interesting story about the adjudication process is that it was it was not a judicial process, obviously, and that it was uh, frequently uh, what I'd say poisoned by interests that were inappropriate. I think that the Virginia case, as opposed to North Carolina, I can't really speak to that process, but uh, the Virginia case of uh, Buck versus Bell, which is the constitutional uh, support uh, for practice of eugenics, uh, was a case in which the woman who was sterilized was actually raped by her employer. And the request to have her sterilized was by that employer. And uh, his influence in in the system allowed it to go through. So I think that there's a real problem uh, right up front with, with an issue like eugenics, where you had these uh, state-level boards that were not courts. They didn't follow the same processes. The the, the due process uh, provisions were not the same. And, and people were kind of put in a difficult position to... to be forced to be sterilized. And in the uh, Buck versus Bell case, the consent was actually signed by the mother of the, uh, the woman who was uh, was probably under great duress to go ahead and sign the consent forms when she was forced to. If I can just footnote that or follow up with what um, with James's important observations, Craig, um, I think what's he's put his finger on what I think is central to um, the movement for compensation. That is, there are a number of people who either they didn't consent because they were couldn't consent because they were minors or um, they um, were opposed to the they were adults but were opposed to sterilization and the board adjudicated them as as uh, needing sterilization anyway um, and so you said this episodes of extraordinary interference with personal autonomy um, and I think that's what's sort of driving this movement for compensation. I do think we need to segregate out um, or at least pay some attention to sort of exactly how this process worked, because as I say, there were some people in North Carolina who um, actually themselves sought out um, uh, state-sponsored um, uh, or provided sterilization. There's um, a, a real, let me, let me drop this into the conversation. There's a, a very good book um, on um, this, that is actually what sort of got the movement started. Um, that Joanna Schoen uh, wrote, published back in around 2005, called "Choice and Coercion," um, and she's the person who sort of went first, went and got a hold of these um, eugenics records uh, in the North Carolina State Archives and began going through them. And she's the person who's pointed out that in many, many instances, as, as James said, you had um, people who were minors; they couldn't consent or uh, they were um, um, put into, uh, for instance, a home for orphans, and then the response was, well, why don't we, rather than adequately supervising and making sure that the orphan was being um, protected, the response was sterilize her um, so that she won't have children, um, right? Those kinds, those episodes, which I think are distinct from um, some of the other um, voluntary sterilization, right? They're, and in North Carolina, we talk about this as sort of three things. There is the voluntary sterilization, there is coerced sterilization, and then there is the involuntary sterilization. I think there's is sort of the lay of the land here suggests that there's some real, um, uh, one has to sort of tease out what the circ circumstances of sterilization were. Well, 
James, what's what do you think the real mission behind eugenics is? Is this some kind of are we really trying to do good for society by, you know, changing the gene pool or is this more just you know, kind of a situation where people are trying to protect their personal interests? Well, I think that Al really touched on it in in the beginning of of this interview um that it the eugenics movement definitely came out of a kind of period of thought where where the idea was that science was going to solve the modern world's problems. And I think that you can trace eugenics back into the social Darwinism movement, particularly of the, the late 19th century. And the idea being that that the application of, of a pseudoscience, which was social Darwinism, could be could be used in modern culture to to synthesize a culture that was completely free of undesirable people, whether they be uh, what, what Justice Holmes called imbeciles or the mentally retarded, uh, the promiscuous. And I think that I think that probably at the time the people were not intending to be as malicious as we might look at them now, but the result ran what I believe to be very, very against some of the fundamental principles of the United States of America set forth in the Constitution, particularly the right to autonomy and the rights to um, privacy and and additional provisions. And I also think that in the criminal context, you have uh, an issue with the Eighth Amendment prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. Is this really still constitutional? Yes. The the difficulty of the constitutionality, the last case involving um, the, the issue of eugenics was in uh, 1981, and it was a case in which uh, the plaintiff had sued for damages related to involuntary sterilization, and the court in that case, uh, it was actually Poe versus Lynchburg, uh, held that since sterilization didn't violate constitutional rights, uh, there was no recovery for the plaintiff. And it that, that case actually does draw from the original Buck versus Bell case. Um, there has not been a case that directly overturns Buck versus Bell. I'd say that the closest we really have is the Skinner versus Oklahoma case, which analyzed uh, application of sterilization in the criminal context through the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause. But that case, it doesn't eliminate uh, eugenics as unconstitutional. It simply says that if eugenics is being applied in the criminal context, it has to be applied in a non-discriminatory manner. So, yes, there there is no current standing uh, case law which finds the practice of eugenics and involuntary sterilization unconstitutional. And, and Al, why don't we talk about some of the reparations that are going on in the offers that are being made uh, in North Carolina and whether there are offers in other states, and if not, why uh, not? Yeah, Craig, thanks very much. This is, um, and, and this is what I think has sort of stirred recent public um, uh, interest in the eugenics movement, right? So in North Carolina, we've had, uh, going back to the, I guess it's uh, early um, 2000s, a periodic revisiting of North Carolina's history. And, and as I mentioned earlier in the show, this was sort of stirred by a uh, history professor, Joanna Schoen, who did um, research on uh, at the State Archives on the Eugenics Board. And what she 
um, showed was that there were um, thousands of people who had been involuntarily sterilized. And the Winston-Salem Journal um, picked this up and ran a really terrific series uh, back in 2002 um, that began to peel back this um, layer of history. That led in 2003 to Governor Mike Easley's apology and then some initial move to have some kind of um, uh, health and physical health um, programs for people who had been sterilized and periodic revisiting of this over time. Back in, I guess it was um, uh, 2010, Governor, our current Governor, Bev Perdue, um, finally said, well, why don't we uh, establish a foundation that will, um, you know, make some kind of significant investigation into what happened and then make some recommendations for uh, what, if anything, we should do now. Um, and their website is really very, very helpful. It's sterilizationvictims.nc.gov. That's sterilizationvictims, all one word, .nc.gov, which has um, an awful lot of um, data on it. It has for instance, um, uh, some of the pre-printed forms that were used to sort of identify who would be um, a, a good person for sterilization and get the process started and also has some redacted minutes from the eugenics board that give a real sense of how um, perfunctory, really, the review was that the um, sterilization board conducted. Well, Al, I need to interrupt you for just a moment. We need to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to tell you more about the U.S. Supreme Court's shocking decision on eugenics and what, why forced sterilization is technically constitutional. Lawyer to Lawyer returns right after this. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to talk to us about the benefits of cloud computing. Now, what do you think the single biggest benefit to cloud computing is? In talking to our customers recently uh, about that very question, I was surprised with what came back with as, as a really resounding response, and, and that was that it's the convenience and the freedom that cloud computing affords them. The ability to get their work done from anywhere, whether it's at their office, at the courthouse, at home, or even if they're on vacation, they're able to get their work done where and when they need to get it done. Uh, the mobile aspect of things is also increasingly important. Well, with cloud-based software, you can access your data and software from your iPhone or your iPad, uh, your BlackBerry, uh, and other mobile devices. So for the uh, lawyers that are on the move, which is an increasing uh, proportion of lawyers, that's a, a really key benefit as well. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if anyone wants additional information on Clio, they can feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. If you're like many solo and small firm attorneys, it can be challenging to manage both your practice and give your clients the attention they need. Well, now you can do it all free for 30 days with LexisNexis Firm Manager. 
Built from the ground up for attorneys like you, it's an easy way to get organized, master your business, and keep your clients happy. Firm Manager is secure, web-based, and mobile, so you can manage your practice anytime, anywhere, from your laptop, smartphone, iPad, or tablet. No IT hassles, no long-term commitments, and best of all, no more worries about what needs to be done. Get your free 30-day trial of LexisNexis Firm Manager today at firmmanager.com slash LTN. That's firmmanager.com slash LTN. You never have enough friends or followers, right? Check out Legal Talk Network on Facebook and Twitter, LinkedIn too. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams, along with Alfred Brophy. He's a professor of law at the University of North Carolina. And Attorney James Bowden from Waller Lansden in Nashville, Tennessee. Al, before the break, you were talking and I, I interrupted you as you were finishing up a thought. So we're talking a little bit about um, the movement for recompense for sterilization victims. And as of 2010, Governor Bev Perdue had a, put together a, a study commission um, to sort of get to the bottom of what exactly happened and make some kind of recommendations for compensation. And what they've done just at the end of uh, January of uh, last month um, suggested that what we should do is give $50,000 to every now-living person who had been sterilized by the state of North Carolina. Um, and it's some ambiguity how many people that would be. Um, estimates run between 1,000 and 2,000 people. Uh, and what they are suggesting is just a flat um, $50,000. Um, and that builds in some ways on some other precedents. You may recall the a Civil Liberties Act of 1988 um, signed by President Reagan um, provided – uh, $20,000 to every um, then-living um, Japanese-American person who had been interned during World War II, right? So there's some sort of precedent for um, just uh, taking a flat number, and you know, obviously, I think we all could agree, no amount of money could adequately um, compensate somebody for um, the, these intru- great intrusions in personal autonomy, but you have to come up with some figure um, in some ways, I'd be interested in what James thinks about this. In some ways, I think that sort of flat fee is a very desirable um, sort of mechanism. It makes it much easier to sort of um, ad- administer the program. This is a little bit different from something like the 9-11 Victims Compensation Act, where what we were trying to do was provide um, something and like make an assessment of lost income um, that people had. So some family members received substantially more than others. Uh, these are 9-11 victims. Um, but I, but here's the sort of the, the piece of the puzzle that um, I would like to see some more of. Um, before we get to the point of, of cutting checks, I'd like to see a, a little bit fuller investigation um, of exactly how this process worked, um, trying to identify the number of people who were 
involuntarily sterilized, the number of people who were coerced into sterilization, the number of people who volunteered. Um, and I think we need to have the, the records are pretty sparse, and, and that is in, of, in itself suggests how perfunctory um, these procedures were. Um, but I do think that the, we're, we're at a moment that before the checks are cut, maybe we should be um, having a little bit more investigation of exactly what was going on. Right? We hear a lot about truth and reconciliation. Um, I think first we need to know exactly what happened. Then we will be in a position to um, uh, decide on um, uh, uh, compensation. And it would not at all surprise me if once we have the full story, there will be some people whom the legislature will want to compensate it dramatically more than that $50,000. But I'd be interested in your thoughts, Craig and James, as well. Go ahead, James. Well, I do think that's interesting. And I, I, I really like what Alice said about truth and reconciliation. I do think that that is a necessary part of any process uh, when you're dealing with circumstances like these where a wrong has been leveled against a discrete group of individuals. Uh, I think Al is absolutely right that there's a kind of brilliant simplicity to North Carolina's program uh, of, of restitution. You're talking about a, a fairly easily definable group of people being those that, that were sterilized and are still living and, uh, and a fixed amount rather than, like was pointed out, what was done in the 9-11 uh, the, the reparations of trying to assess future earnings, which would probably not be appropriate when you talk about um, sterilization. But I do think that, that there is a risk when you do, uh, like we're saying, cut the check, that you close the book on the matter. And, and it does, um, I think, bear speaking about that the, the major uh, way that, that that things like this will be prevented from being uh, continued in the future or for, to, that pre prevents history from repeating itself is going to be a public airing of, of not only that something happened and that it was a problem, but what had happened and why it was a problem and how it had happened. And I think that that's a very appropriate thing for North Carolina to go through. And I, I really hope that the, uh, the payment of restitution to these people is not the end of the discussion about North Carolina's eugenics. Well, and gentlemen, we've just about reached the end of our program, so it's time to wrap up with your final thoughts and your contact information. And uh, James, I'll throw it over to you first. Uh, well, I, I, I just really do appreciate being here today. I think it's an interesting subject. Uh, I was sparked to write about it on, on our blog when I heard about it on the radio uh, last month. And uh, anybody interested, it's uh, younglawyersblog.com. You can get in touch with me through my blog and love to have your uh, readership. Great. And how would our, our listeners reach out to you individually? Individually, you can reach me at james.bowden, that's B-O-W-D-E-N, at wallerlaw.com, W-A-L-L-E-R-L-A-W.com. Great. Thank you very much. And Al? Uh, Craig, thanks very much. Um, just a couple of websites here that I think are, would be very useful is Sterilization Victims, all one word, .nc.gov, has a, a great amount of information if you're interested in learning more about that or um, get out of your local library, Joanna Schoen's Choice and Coercion. Um, my colleague at the University of Wisconsin, Victoria Norse, did a very nice book on that Skinner v. Oklahoma case called In Reckless Hands. So those are all some nice resources. Um, I'd love to 
um, continue the discussion uh, via email, and my address is abrophy, that is A, B as in boy, R, O, P as in person, H, Y, at email.unc.edu. Great. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for participating in the program today. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show, and and it uh, taught me an awful lot. For our listeners, uh, remember you can now get CLE credit through our West Legal Ed Center for listening to Select Legal Talk Network podcasts. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center. Remember, you can also find all Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes. And we'll be back again next week with another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.